0: Omar M. Khatib is a marketing leader based in Silicon Valley. He actually started not going to med school before going into marketing. He developed marketing strategies at two publicly traded surgical robotic companies through their IPOs, as well as co-founded and successfully launched a a consumer product for men's fashion. Having successfully crowdfunded and launched a consumer product, Omar brings his knowledge of B2C marketing through digital channels to a B2B world. His area of focus are category design, driving adoption, and new technologies, and developing strategies to channel attention towards generating demand. He's currently the head of growth at Gentem, an end-to-end billing and revenue cycle management company for physician practices. His career in marketing has made him a student of influence, so we discussed Robert Cialdini's seven principles of persuasion and how and why physicians should be utilizing them with our patients. These principles are reciprocity, scarcity, authority, commitment, consensus, Likeability and unity. You can follow Omar on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Omar M. Khatib, or on his YouTube channel, Mindloom with Omar M. Khatib.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story
0: time brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading One Job, Two Job. One job, two jobs. Red blob, no job. Elective doc, emergency doc, some in overstock, some in out of stock. This doc is too abused. This doc is underused. This doc can't get sick. Say, let's try a brand new trick. For all the docs about to cry, here's an idea you can try. Look into Locum Tenant's Assignments, a really great option. You might find it. Don't forget, Locum's pays much better, and you can find assignments in any type of weather. With all this new info trapped up in your thinker, go to locum, go to slash LocumStory and use your mouse to tinker. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you're after so you can decide if Locum Tenens is your next chapter. Omar Khatib, thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Brad, it's a pleasure to finally be back on the show. Pleasure to be here with you.
0: <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it's been a long day, as you can tell. So I'm like, <laughs> so it's, great, it's great to be here, man. So to clarify... He hasn't been on the show before. Oh, that's right. I haven't been on the show. But I've been on his show. That's
2: right. Even on our show at Gentem. But I feel like I've been on your show just because I do listen to your episodes. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's hard to find good, like, medical and physician-led podcasts. So, like, that's the reason why. You know, I've been dreaming about coming on your show. And that's why I felt like (laughs) I've already been here. That's what
0: it is. All right. laying down. (laughs) I've got (laughs) it. So let's talk about your background first, because you started off in med school. And I feel like starting that process and then deciding to stop it, it's like jumping off a moving train. You go to med school and then you go to residency and then maybe fellowship. And then if you decide at any point in that process that you're like, no, it's like jumping off a moving train. So what my guess is you were living in Lubbock, you went to uh, Texas Tech,
2: no, I was way smarter than the people who went to Lubbock. So I went to Texas Tech, but I went to Texas Tech, El Paso.
0: Uh, I But
2: by all means, we should totally talk a little bit of trash about Lubbock because here's a place in the middle of nowhere that's a dry county, meaning you cannot buy alcohol within the county. Because like when you're in the middle of nowhere, you have nothing else better to do than to drink, but they don't let you buy booze in Lubbock, you know? So that's like one other reason not to go there, right?
0: I was 16 and just to show the big nerd that I am, I went to science camp and I did cell molecular biology research in Lubbock. This was 25 years ago now. And I still remember the smells of the feedlots just filling your nostrils. Amazing. And nothing as far as the eye could see, just flat nothing. I was convinced that was the reason that you were like, no, no, no. But you were in El Paso. So why did you decide that med school wasn't for you? Yeah. So a little background on me.
2: So I'm born and raised in El Paso, Texas. I'm a first generation American. My father immigrated here from Iraq. My mother's from Turkey. Mother was a biologist. My father was a general surgeon, trained at Cook County Hospital back in the days in the seventies when it was a knife fighting club. It's still a knife fighting club, but it was really bad back then. And he set up a solo practice in El Paso, Texas, right? So growing up, I'm the eldest and I'm a boy and I have an Iraqi father. So I really looked up to my father a lot. Unlike most Arab kids, my father did not pressure me to go into medicine, but I really admired him a lot, and I saw what it meant to be a doctor. And again, so I'm 35. This is growing up in the 90s, which meant you were a leader in your community, you owned your own business, right? You were part of a larger corporation, which is you know he was a uh, chief of surgery for some time at the hospital, right? So they had like all the things, you know, the best of all worlds. And I was like, that's what I want to be. Some of the time, I was like five or six years old. I was in love with science, and I said, you know. The way I want to use science as a tool is through medicine, treating patients, running my own business. My father had me when he was 40 years old. So my experience with medicine was when he was already established. By the time I went to medical school, things already changed quite a bit, right? So I worked really hard, blood, sweat, and tears. And as everybody knows, everybody goes to college saying that they want to be pre-med. Very small few <laughs> yeah. percentage of people actually commit to it. And even smaller percentage actually get in. I was very lucky in the sense that I worked extremely hard. I was not someone who just killed it on the MCAT. I had to retake it and everything. But after going through all of that, I finally get it. I got pre-accepted to the Paulo Foster School of Medicine, which was insane. To get pre-accepted is one thing. Two days later, or a few weeks later, I found out that I ended up getting a scholarship. So I was living the dream, man. Pre-accepted to medical school. Let me the best time of my life was from November 6th up until June. Because that was a period where I was already accepted in medical school. I had no job, no nothing. I was on scholarship. I was living the time of my life. You know, everyone who went to med school knows that period, which is like, you get all the benefit of what it means to be a physician without doing nothing. It's like, oh, I'm going to medical school next year. Like, it was great. Pats on the back from people, high-fiving. It was wonderful. I start medical school and I love it, but just something was off. I wasn't feeling it. And I thought it was just like, oh, I just got to work harder. This is part of it. You know, went through my first year, did okay, took a little time off. This research had to repeat my first year, went through it again. So now we're two years in, right? And starting my second year, which now it's three years in medical school, feeling the same way. And I was feeling down and all the sides were there of depression. I was not interested in doing things. I was just sleeping a lot. I was having a difficulty waking up and I was just being a guy about it and just saying, oh, I just got to work through this. And so one day I heard an anesthesiology resident at UCSF, he just gave me some advice and I just told him like, you know, I'm feeling this way. And he's like, you know, I felt that way too. He's like, my first and second year of medical school, I was really down and I could see myself doing other things. That was the key. I could see myself doing other things. And I just ignored it, just kept working harder and harder. Third and fourth year, I was like, no, I'll get better, get better. I got into residency and he's like, you know, I still feel that way, but what am I going to do? I can't quit now. That was it. That scared the hell out of me. I said, this guy was not in just any random special. He's an anesthesiology resident at UCSF. And so that caused me to go and sit down and have a talk with my father, the general surgeon. And I told him how I was feeling. I'll never forget my father looked at me and said, it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get harder. And if you feel this way, I support you if you want to leave. I I get choked up just thinking about that to this day because here's a man who's talking to his eldest son. There's his friends, family. Everyone knows, oh, Mazen's son is in medical school. And he put that ego away and said, hey, if you want to leave, like, I
0: support you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I get that because it's a reflection on him. So that's not an easy thing to say. Yeah. But that's, yeah, not at all. It's amazing not at all. That, that your dad said that.
2: Very much. So, you know, left medical school and didn't know what the hell to do with myself. And so I said, okay, I've done some sales before. Let me just do sales. So I did door-to-door sales in the heat of Texas getting rejected. One after that, I was working for a collection agency company called Transworld Systems. Great technology and everything, but door-to-door sales is hard. So in that process, that's when I started to learn a little bit more about persuasion. Because so I was like, there's got to be a framework. Because that's the one thing I learned from medicine. Anybody who is a medical student, or a resident, or doctor who leaves medicine to pursue new business, the one superpower you have is we all teach ourselves medicine, let's be frank. And so you become a learning machine, especially out of those first two years of medical school. So I devoured every sales book, everything, and that led me down the rabbit hole of persuasion. Once I started doing that, I got hired by my first company in med device. Every med device uh, recruiter is like, "Oh, you got to start out with disposables, everything." That's BS. Surgical robotic company, which is still, in my opinion, one of the most prestigious things to work in, recruited me, and I started out in sales. They realized I was very good at marketing and and market development and patient seminars, all these things. So I became the U.S. marketing manager. And I haven't really looked back since. And so my career over the last nine or 10 years now has been built on, if you have a unique disruptive paradigm shifting technology, like when the first robotic spine company came to be, right? And you don't have a market, you don't have a category, and you have to figure out how do you push adoption to change the status quo? Those are the companies I go work for. So that's what brought me to my latest company. I'm the head of growth for a company called Gentem Health. Very proud to be here because again, former med student, father's a surgeon. Gentem Health's mission is to help private practices stay independent. And the way we do that is by simplifying and maximizing the whole reimbursement and revenue cycle process. Stanford educated physician and a Facebook software engineer teamed up, built a platform and a service to help doctors and practices get paid sooner and faster. And of course, we find other ways to, you know, produce financial products for them. But along the way, this concept of persuasion is so important because not only is it important for physicians when they adopt a new technology, but how do they talk about this with their patients? But also for me as a marketer, I do persuasion on a massive scale. So understanding these, this framework is important because I guarantee you, you try to persuade multiple people today, including your spouse, without even knowing. We do tried, it every day. Yeah, tried and, yeah. yeah, but with this system that I'm yeah. about to show you right now, <laughs> You can increase your chances that you go to the restaurant you want with your wife nine out of 10 times. How's it working out with your wife? <laughs> hey, let me tell you, she lets me do whatever hell I want. So I'm happy. But I also married a phenomenal wife. I did something right in my life to deserve her. I did something right. That's all I'll say. But the concept of persuasion is important because we always do it. Think about when you went to a restaurant with a friend. The first thing that you say, hey, we should go to this restaurant. And, and let's say you're in a group and people are like, why should we go to this restaurant? Most of the time, You'll either say, oh, it's a new restaurant. Everyone's trying to go to it. Or what do we do? We look at Yelp and be like, well, this restaurant has like 2,000 reviews and it's four stars right there. There's social proof in there and there's authority. Then you say, there's a spot open tonight at seven o'clock. There's no other spots for the whole week. There's scarcity. So we bake in persuasion. The reason why some people are a lot more persuasive than others is because you ac- they actually know how to develop a formula and apply it at the right times.
0: Before we get into that, you mentioned that you must have done something good in order to deserve your wonderful wife. So you must have a moral compass under that salesmanship somewhere. A hundred percent. Before we get into the principle of persuasion, let's talk about the ethics of it, right? Is it even ethical for a physician to utilize principles? and a framework of persuasion when we're interacting with our patients. Shouldn't we just be providing them with information and letting them make their own decision? Or should we be influencing them towards what we think is the right decision?
2: Great question. So I'm gonna take a very even tone in answering this, but I have a very strong opinion about this. 100%, you have to have, like in medicine, the best way to make a good ethical decision is to have your ethics set up beforehand. So that's definitely important. The one thing I always say when it comes to like, are you using persuasion ethically is, are you persuading someone to do something that they would be happy they did later on? If not, that's when it becomes manipulation. Now, here's the added thing with physicians. And again, I'm a little bit old school. And when a patient comes to you, they're coming to you because you're an expert. Because you have deep expertise in something. And in my opinion, I think it's CYA medicine, right? When you just only provide these very complicated decisions and say, hey, what do you think we should do? There's one thing where you work with the patient and you work as a team to make a decision. But in my experience, when I went to a doctor who I stopped going to many years ago for a procedure, and I asked him, doctor, what would you do in my situation? You're giving me two options. What should I do? And he kept going back like, well, you can do this and here are the pros and cons. You can do that. I'm like, great. What would you do? And he wouldn't answer the question, right? And so there's responsibility on the side of the expert, the person that is delivering the service that you have to be persuasive. And part of this is patient compliance too. So if you really believe that your patient who's diabetic is going to live a better and healthier and longer life, if you find a way to persuade them away from junk food and poor foods and, and persuade them towards a healthier life, then you need to pull these tools out because you're going to save that person. Otherwise, if you don't persuade them, guess who will? Family, the internet, all these other things. And doctors and medicine are under attack today. Look at what we, we just went through, COVID. That was a big experiment in persuasion and influence. So physicians have to know how to use these things.
0: Right, and actually the principles that we learned today, we could be applying in the office when we're discussing the vaccine vaccines. So a hundred percent. I don't want to make this another episode about about vaccines since I had eight episodes. So you guys can look back in the old ones about how to talk to your patients about vaccines. I've got all sorts of different experts teaching us how to influence patients into getting the vaccine. So this will be a not vaccine free episode maybe, but uh, that's not letting the focus.
2: And before we get into the framework, here's a great example of in my opinion, persuasion with the vaccine versus not. And I'm not gonna say whether I'm pro or anti, that's not important. What I would say is when you go through the patient based on their personal history, age, health, have they been exposed to COVID, all these different things. And then you go through the risks of getting the vaccine versus not getting the vaccine, and you can persuade one way or the other, that's fine. Where it's unethical is to say something like, well, if you don't get this vaccine, you're going to die. And if you don't get this vaccine, then you're a terrible human being and you're putting others at, pers- then you're using manipulation and fear and like emotionally charged persuasion to do it.
0: Then you're a newscaster. Is- yeah. Then you're a newscaster. <laughs> exactly. And I use say- fear to get them to tune in in 10 minutes when we talk about why this shopping cart will kill you. A hundred percent. And Brad, was your father a physician as well? No. But
2: growing up, You and I both, of the generation, we dealt with great physician leaders in the community. Those people who are, in my mind, and I know that you've dealt with them since you had grown up in the Northeast as well, is that they were persuasive, but they were even-toned and they were objective. The great physicians, in my opinion, they were like that. Those are the people that I want to grow up to be.
0: So let's help the physician listeners to be that person. So do you want to go through Cialdini's principles, like one by one? Yeah, 100%. So the psychologist we're talking about, Robert Cialdini, he has these two major books, Influence and Persuasion. To me, it's like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's just, once you read it, you're like, that's intuitive, that just makes sense. But it's really the fact that he was able to break it down like this and systematize like this really revolutionized it. And and this can be used for good or evil. So as physicians, it's our obligation to use these principles for good. So one of them is reciprocity. So it's that you feel obligated to return favors to people who have done favors for you in the past. An example of that is when you get something in the mail that they want a donation from you and they include stamps or return addresses, right? Now they've given you something. So even though it's worth barely anything, you now feel more obligated to return the favor. And that increases their donations. So they don't do it because they're nice. They do it because they studied it and figured out by giving you these next to worthless return addresses with your name on it, you're more likely to then donate. So it's an investment on their part. So reciprocity. I don't understand how that can actually be used in the doctor-patient relationship. But Omar, do you have any ideas about that?
2: A hundred, a hundred percent. And, and if you don't mind, just as a like little agenda, So people remember. So do you mind if I list the principles real quick? No, please. Okay, because this is the easiest way that I found. So again, coming out of medical school, we're great at mnemonics, okay? The way you remember these all these principles is our class. We're now learning and this is our class. And it's R-C-L-A-S, reciprocity, consistency, liking, authority, scarcity, social proof. So let's start with reciprocity. And with Cialdini's work, the thing that people have to keep in mind is to why should I listen to this person? This is the most foremost psychologist on consumer psychology, persuasion out there. His book, Influence, was written over 30 or 40 years ago. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger constantly reference it. And if you see something persuasive in politics, it's highly likely he was behind it. So on the reciprocity side, here's the way you should think about it. So one of the studies they did was that they found that shoppers who came into a store, if you give them a free piece of candy... At a candy store, it increased sales by 42%. And Costco does the same thing. You know, you mentioned the free samples that get sent to them. At Costco, there's a reason why you give out free samples at the front. So the whole thing, though, is that you shouldn't think about it just giving us things for free. Reciprocity could be words. And so one of those things, it could be paying a patient a compliment, right? If you pay somebody a compliment, what's the one thing we're trying to do with patients? We're trying to get them to be kind to us, to be comfortable to open up. And by the way, here's something that I can hang my hat on. In medical school, I have the papers to prove it. I was like one of the best at patient encounters. I was really good at patient encounters and compliance. So one thing you can do with a patient when you walk in, pay them a compliment and maybe open something up that's personal, right? You say, how was your day? And they're like, oh, it was good. And they might say, how was your day or something? You can say something like, oh, it was good. You know, my son is going to this thing or, you know, not so great, you know, my daughter or my wife, there's this thing and, you know, we'll worry about it. But by offering that one little piece of personal information, you have now created a reciprocation where they're going to be more comfortable opening up to you. We can't assume that just because they're patients, they're going to tell us everything about their personal life. Because maybe one of those patients has, I don't know, an abusive spouse. Maybe they have a drug abuse problem. And so we have to make them feel comfortable to open up about that. And one of those pieces is reciprocations. It's the same thing with the front staff.
0: I'd like to just give a little caveat to that, though. This is not an open invitation to talk about yourself the entire time. Yeah. Surgeons, listen up. (laughs) Yeah. I know plenty of physicians that do this where they just talk to the patient about themselves. You have to remember that the patient is the star of the show. So you might add a little bit about yourself, right? It humanizes you, and then you're giving them a little bit of yourself i would also warn you not to do anything that's too self-deprecating because you're an authority while it is important to humanize yourself you don't want to bring up anything that questions your competence
2: exactly so
0: you're choosing what to share make sure you're doing it you know it has to be brief it has to be humanizing and it has to be something that doesn't take away from your competency Exactly. And just something, this
2: is not necessarily with patients for those physicians who have to go and visit other practices for referrals. One other thing to supercharge reciprocity is these three keys, making it very meaningful, something that's unexpected, and something that's customized, right? Throwing this as an example, if you're a surgeon, let's say you're going to try to get referral from a physician, that physician, I don't know, really likes getting a book and signing it and visiting them, that's something that's very meaningful. It's customized and it's something that's unexpected. That's a small example.
0: That's for more if you're looking for referrals, not necessarily with patient care. Yeah. Otherwise, definitely. it really <laughs> cut into the bottom line. So you said our class. So the next one is commitment or consensus, which the yes. commitment, right? Commit. Yeah,
2: people change the target. It's either commitment, it's either consistency, commitment or consistency. Okay. The big thing about this is that especially as we get older, we become more persuaded by what we're trying to be consistent with, how we vote, who we associate with, et cetera. So a blood donation organization found this principle, and this is essentially what they did. They used to get people to sign up for blood donations, and they used to say, okay, so will you make a donation? Yes, we will. Okay, great. We'll put you on the list, and we'll see you then. Thank you. That was it. When they changed the phrase to this, they saw an increase by about 12.4%. So they had 70% people who used to comply, they jumped it to 82.4%. And anybody who knows anything about statistics knows that when you get higher up, it becomes harder and harder to move the needle. So this is a big jump. They changed it to, okay, thank you for signing up. We'll put you down on the list to show up. Okay. And they would end with a question to have the other person verbally confirm and say, Yes, I will be there on this day. The way you translate this to patients is on compliance, right? So let's use the patient who's diabetic. When you explain what they should be doing with their diet or let's say their medications, having them verbally say, yes, I will do that is helpful. One thing to do also is getting someone to sign a piece of paper like, yes, I understand I'll comply. It's kind of hard to do that with patients, but getting them to say it back to you is important.
0: How do you do that without being patronizing? You're going to start your medication when? When was it? When were you going to, you know, like, I feel Shut like there's a way to deliver it. And I don't know what that is because everything that's coming to my mind right now ends up coming off as patronizing.
2: Yeah. So I think one way to do it, and I think, again, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So one thing I used to do in medical school is that if, when we are doing patient counters, we had a long list. I would go through it with the patient. It's not self-deprecating, but you could say like this is say, you know, Ms. Smith, thank you so much for coming in. Just by the way, I kind of shared a lot of information and I just want to make sure that I communicated it effectively. Do you mind just kind of saying back to me more or less the things that you have to do with your medications moving forward? And then they'll say, yeah, and they'll repeat it back. And then you reiterate, say, hey, thank you so much for doing that. Just sometimes I'm moving fast. I just want to make sure that I communicated it appropriately. So you're kind of putting the onus on yourself. You're being a little vulnerable, but having them speak it back to you is a key.
0: And I think it's important the way you said that, I wanna make sure that I communicated it, not I wanna make sure that you understood it because then it makes it seem like I was clear, I just wanna make sure that you were paying attention, not rather than the way you said it, which was, I know you were paying attention, I just wanna make sure that the way I said it wasn't so confusing. Exactly, and again, this
2: is a regional thing, keep in mind, I grew up on the border, so it was a very big Mexican population there. So I saw this actually in my dad's office and I started doing this when I was in medical school. You can joke a little bit with the patients. So as an example, I used to see my dad when he would see certain patients, like there was specifically this one lady and she had to wear compression stockings for radical veins. and he would joke with her. He's like, "Cookie, you're gonna do this and that. And he's like, you promised, right? You're gonna make sure to do this. She's like, oh yeah, Dr. Ketiba. He's like, okay. He said, don't let me down. I know you're gonna do it. So joking with the patient to say like, hey, like, you know, show that you actually care. It kind of puts that image in the patient's mind that this doctors, I want to make sure that they're happy. I want to you know, be I thinking that about
0: me after I'm gone. Exactly. Yeah.
2: It, yeah, exactly. And look at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We're all animals. And so we're all primed for reward. So there's nothing wrong with showing a little enthusiasm to your patients. Again, I keep using the diabetes example, but it's like, Hey, just at least when I was in med school, there's one lady every day, she had a Coca-Cola. So I had to talk her off of that. And I said, you got to make sure to do this because here are the reasons why. I know you don't want to be diabetic. If you keep going down this route. This is the issue. I was like, I know you can do it. Do you promise me you're not going to do it? No more Diet Coke. And she "So okay, I promise. I was like, all right, you promised. I said, so next time I see you, no diet. And she stopped. Next
0: yeah. time I saw her. It was like magic. And again, to be clear, none of these things are going to just work. These principles increase the likelihood of it happening. Exactly. Guarantee outcomes. So the next one is likability. So we all know you used to be an equipment rep. Those reps, (laughs) they're always well-dressed, super likable, super enthusiastic. How's it going? So likability. We say yes to people that we like. And that actually gets back to the reciprocity. People like being complimented. So, you know, if you say something nice about your patient, there's a principle of reciprocity and also it makes you likable, it endears you to the patient.
2: That's exactly correct. And again, I tried my best to pull both books. Like his persuasion book has at least, I don't know, 100, 200 pages of references. So the study that was used with this was that with hairstylists, they found that hairstylists increased their tips by 37%. Yeah, these are big numbers, 37% just on this one thing, when people came in and asked for a hairstyle and said, what should I get? The hairstylist said, anything will look good on you. And then they would decide, right? So making someone like you and the way you get people to like you is if you compliment people, you make them feel good about themselves, that's a big piece. And think of it like this, you're dealing with people who are coming to you at their most vulnerable time. So it does make a difference sometimes if you pay them a compliment, maybe on a piece of clothing that they're wearing, maybe on something, I don't know what it could be. But find ways to make that person feel good. That's one way to increase liking. The other key, and again, this depends on what field of medicine you're in. Me having a dad who's a private practice surgeon, he used to wear a suit and tie to work or a shirt and tie to work every day. You know, try and look nice. A lot of people who are in scrubs, that's fine. But look, if you have a beard, look at Brad and mine's beard. It's well-kept. It looks nice. Like,
0: I spent you a lot look- of time to look this way. It doesn't exactly. happen. It's not an accident. You got to look like you give a damn. You know, you (laughs) got to look like you give a damn. I think that actually ties into the next principle, authority. That's a very interesting one. Because people are coming to us already because we're an authority. But you also need to look like you're an authority. I actually read that patients prefer the white coat. Yes. I don't know many doctors who like the white coat themselves. I hate it. I don't wear it. It's a pain. Pre-COVID, I would wear a shirt, a tie, and a jacket. Eventually, I just got too busy and the jacket became too cumbersome and too sweaty because I'd do too many procedures. But still, shirt and tie, which I think adds to the authority because if you look the part, they expect you to act the part. But what are some other ways? You know, they're coming to us because we're supposed to be trustworthy and credible experts. What else can we do to make sure that we don't lose that and that we can... Make the Asians really believe
2: it. And Brad, you got to guide me on this one. So you're right. You already have authorities. How do you increase authority more? Can it be one that we just skip because we inherently have the authority? If you can find a way to add it, I would always add it. There's that famous saying, Marshall McLuhan said, which is like the medium is the message. But in this case, the messenger is the message. So the white code is big. You don't have to have a white code. But what are some other things? Again, I keep going back to surgery. Let's say you have a patient who's already, they're going to go ahead and have a surgery with you. Part of this, in my opinion, and there's no study on this, I think increasing patient confidence, right, which decreases stress prior to procedures, it's not going to hurt, definitely not, it's going to help. So how do you do that? One physician, I remember this, actually a procedure that I had done it many years ago. The surgeon did this, not by thinking about it, but I was going to have the procedure. He's going through what's going to happen. And he said this, he's like, look, I trained at Yale or something. I've done over a thousand of these. And in my experience, like it's been less than 0.001% that had this kind of like reaction. I don't think you have anything to worry about. So just by him giving me a number and that all that authority backloaded made me a lot less stressed out about this one side effect or risk of the procedure. And he said, yeah. And so I think where you can use it is really important. I'm going to use one of our guests, Dr. Chang Ruan. I highly recommend following. Actually, you should definitely have this guy on your show as a guest. He has a really interesting thing he does with patients, and he does this. And I mentioned it because Kialdini mentions it in his book, which is to increase authority, use a negative with a positive, especially when a perceived negative or weakness is seen. What does that mean? If I'm trying to, let's just say, sell you on this pen, and you already know that this pen is Difficult to use because of this clicking thing. But if I tell you, hey, this is a great pen to use. It writes really well. Yeah, it's true. There's this clicking thing that's a paid. But here's the reasons why. The fact that I actually stated it creates a lot more trust the authority. So like with Dr. Juan, what he does with patients when they're trying to figure something out, if it's something he doesn't know, he has no ego. He'll say he does not know. But that increases authority and trust with people. And even in Chialdini's book, he says, you can use three words to do this. Yet- but or how, however. So patient asks you about something you're not sure and you say, I'm not sure, but in my experience, however, use yeah. those things. I don't know the trust. answer
0: to that yet, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. Yeah, if, yeah, if you're acknowledging what you don't know, that gives more credibility for the things that you do know. Totally. And I think sometimes physicians, they have humility
2: in the wrong periods they have a lot of humility and humbleness when it comes to presenting two completely different options and not giving me the direction. But then in other things, they're just absolutely asinine and obnoxious. Like it's just times to be humble. There's times not to be. So that's authority.
0: And the next one is scarcity. That during the initial release of the vaccine, scarcity was real because you couldn't get it so easily. So if you had an opportunity to get it, you had to take advantage of it as soon as possible. Other than that, I'm not sure I should be telling my patients, well, if you don't do the surgery now, you're never going to be able to do it.
2: So there's, and again, I think the big thing, you get creative with these things. So let's use the example of surgery, right? So you can, let's say, okay, I'll, I'll use varicose veins as an example. Let's say there's a patient, they need to get procedure done either way. Otherwise, it's going to cause an issue. And let's say we're heading into the summer and they're like, I don't want to do it because it's the summertime and it's it's two weeks off. So then I can say, okay, this is a way to create scarcities. Look, totally agree. I hear you. So you want to agree with person. I totally agree because summertime, you want to show your legs. You want to go out. But here's the thing. Come wintertime, we're going to get booked out a lot because a lot of patients book at that time. And it's going to be really busy, right? Like you're during the wintertime and fall time you're not going to be on vacation, you're going to be working. So you're not going to be able to take time off. So you're going to be working, there's gonna be holidays, and everything. And then we're going to be in the same position now next year. So that's how you create a little bit of scarcity and more important, a little angst. But again, this goes to learning more about the patient and their life. So you can repeat back facts that they need to create the story in their head as to why you should make a decision.
0: Or for the next week, two veins for the price of one. But you, have, you can tell me now. Yeah,
2: that's true. I'll give you one more interesting one. So again, Dr. Rwan, who I really have a lot of respect for Matt. I think he has a very interesting approach to medicine. They started doing these, again, in educating a patient, let's say on diabetes or something. You can do it one-on-one with somebody. And each time you spend five minutes, which does nothing. Or you do group where you get a bunch of patients with the same thing. Say, hey, we're having this seminar. We're doing it as a group. It's one hour long. You show up. But how do you make sure they go there? There are only 10 seats for the seminar we're doing right? We have two left. Please make sure you sign up and go there. Otherwise, the next one's going to be for another month. Some people don't like to do that, but if this is going to really be helpful to the person, you have to find ways to persuade them because otherwise they're going to be persuaded by something else and that can harm them.
0: So the last one is, I've heard of it referred to as consensus, but in your R class, S is social proof. Social proof. Right? That is so correct. The Trust the power of the crowd. So, you know, if it's popular, there must be a legitimate reason for why it's popular. One of the reasons my podcast is so popular is because it's popular. So popularity breeds popularity, right? You've got tons of downloads. When you search it at the top of the list, you have this many five-star reviews for my podcast. And therefore, more people end up listening to it. You're going to do the things where there's already consensus built around it. So how do we use social proof other than me just trying to get all of my patients to give me five-star Google and Yelp reviews? How else can I use social proof? Yeah. So the big thing about social proof, it's a very
2: interesting one, especially for me as a marketer, because it's one of the most important things when it comes to technology adoption, right? So social proof is not only in the numbers, but you have to see people like yourself. Again, I'm making this up. I could go back to like compliance things with medications and, and diet. If let's say you're trying to influence a patient to stick to a certain diet, you can do a very short video with two or three different patients who come on and say, I followed this diet and I found that this is what happened. Here are my results. I'm much happier today, et cetera, et cetera. Because that's the whole thing. We want to see social proof, evidence. So part of that is a number. But the one thing you'll notice is that numbers really don't move people. We're all emotional and even doctors, when you use numbers to reason for something, most of the time you already have a story that's baked in your head. You're just not aware of it. And probably the biggest example of a study for social proof, and this is a dark one, but it highlights the point, when it came to torturing terrorists for information, right? They polled the public, and people were very much against this. Everybody. The moment people were told that their peers actually were for it, 80% of the public was in favor of using torture to get information out of people. And so taking that dark example up, I think a combination of numbers and actual proof, like people need a face, they need a story, right? So give them the story to anchor to in their head and give them the numbers for that, I guess, objective, logical part of their brain to reason towards that. And once you combine those two things,
0: then you have something. Cialdini came out with a new edition of his book where he now has seven persuasion on influence. There's a newer version of influence. I think it just- There's what? Yeah. And I didn't even know about mine where he adds another principle called unity. Which, yes, human beings are tribal. And so if people like us, and it's similar to social proof, actually, but it's just if the person that's making the appeal to you, you can identify with as part of your tribe. And I'll give you an example of this. If I'm taking real estate advice, I'm not going to take real estate advice from someone who does real estate for a living. As ridiculous as that is. There are a whole bunch of physicians, this all online community of physicians who do real estate. Now, I'm more likely to believe them when they gave me real estate advice. Why? Because physicians are known for real estate? No, because they're part of my tribe of physicians. That last principle is if the patient can relate to you and see you as part of their tribe. And I see this in my community on Long Island as well. Like, The Italian patients go to the Italian doctors. The Jewish patients go to the Jewish doctors. You gravitate towards your own tribe, but your tribe isn't just one single thing. My tribe is Jews. My tribe is doctors. My tribe is Long Islanders. My tribe is other things that I identify with myself. So if you can find something, some common ground where the patient can identify that I am one of, you're more likely to have influence over that person. 100%
2: correct. And yes, so he ends persuasion with unity. And I just checked Amazon, I'm going to get it. So by the way, I don't know why he didn't create just a book on unity. It's influence, but it's expanded. But you're absolutely right. And, And this is a key part of marketing, which is how do you create a community? So people say people like us do things like this, right? And so some of the most successful practices I've seen in medicine, the doctor focused on their practice serving a very specific group of people within the community. For example, in in Detroit, Michigan, certain doctors who are Iraqi take care of Iraqi patients and they're known to the community as the doctor go through. But because of that social proof, they end up getting people who are non-Iraqi also coming to them for certain procedures. But the whole key is, yeah, like it's a thing of unity and and tribal. And so if you're able to focus that, especially if you're in private practice, it's really, really important. And Brad, I was going to say, if there's time, I have a special extra piece of persuasion for your audience. Is it okay if I read it out for you? There's time, Time please. Okay, please. so so just a little context, the most sophisticated books on marketing were written by copywriters 40, 50, 60 years ago. And some of these books are no longer in print. I spent 200, $300 on one of them even, because these people literally wrote copy for ads. And if somebody did not take an action of buying something, that person, that guy's family did not eat that night. So they took persuasion very seriously. So this is the one sentence persuasion. And if I, when I read this sentence to you, the more you study this this sentence and understand how you expand on it, it will take everything you need to know about persuasion. It's it's also baked into a lot of the framework. So here's the one sentence persuasion: People will do anything for those who encourage their dreams, justify their failures, allay their fears confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. <laughs> There's five keys in there. I'm just listing them encouraging dreams, justifying failures, allaying fears, confirming suspicions, and helping throw rocks at enemies. And the more you understand these principles, the, then uh, the best marketing in the world, Apple, Nike, starts to make a lot of sense. And if you look at history what propaganda was used, you'll start to see this as well. But once you have a framework, then you're able, whether you're a position or engineer, whatever your vocation is, you're able to bake in your own formula of persuasion. And one thing that the great Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner said is that when it comes to persuasion, like these principles, no one's did a study to say, well. How much more persuasive is it when you take two or three of those principles? Is it additive? Is it multiply? Does it multiply it? Does it ten x it? Nobody knows, but it does make it a lot better. So the more you bake it in, then you're a lot more effective. And I think once you're a lot more effective, you just you start seeing the results that you need. But again, to your point earlier, you have to take it from a ethical standpoint. So I think the vaccine is a great great example of it because people are very divided on that, and even though it's a scientific issue, people are emotionally charged about it, and so I think making sure you use persuasion in an ethical way to help people make the best decision, that's the way to do it. And not using like emotionally charged, like newscaster language. So that's at least my take on it. Just going through this list, Brad, do you feel like there's a principle of persuasion that physicians don't use that they should? Or do all of them kind of use these?
0: Well, so I think some of them just lend themselves more to the doctor-patient dynamic than others. Again, scarcity. Right. Like that is a very specific situation that you gave where the doctor is doing a very elective cosmetic procedure. And if you don't do it now, I might not be able to book you later. Like a a surgical oncologist is not going to be able to use scarcity, although they might in terms of the progression of the patient's disease. Right. Listen, the sooner we get it, the better you're going to do Um but I don't think they're consciously using scarcity. They're just educating the patient about the nature of the disease. Whereas others others really lend themselves to being woven into the visit, like the reciprocity. Let me give you a little bit of myself. Let me give you a little bit of a compliment. Again, that also weaves in likability. And then the patient's more likely to open up a little more about themselves. They're more likely to trust you because they like you. So some of these elements, certainly more than others, can be easily woven in to every visit.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and again, at the end of the day, you have to help patients not only make a good decision, but you're trying to have them help a, have a better quality of life moving forward. We have to use these principles of persuasion because again, if not, what every physician is up against is the most persuasive machine in history and that's the internet. So it's either you as a physician where you can have this conversation with your patient, guide them, persuade them to making better decisions, or they're going to get persuaded by people in a Facebook forum or Google which in some cases is very helpful, but a lot of times not so much because again, we're emotional creatures. And when you're desperate, you're looking to latch on to any narrative you can to confirm your worldview. And so that's the way I see this. And I think that when you deploy these principles of persuasion as a physician in that short time of an encounter, you also make the patient a lot more, you put the patient in a better position to give you as much information as possible so that you can actually work with the patient and and guide their decisions versus them coming in. You kind of check them out. It's like, Oh, here are your options. What do you want to do? Yeah, that's for forgive me for saying that's crap. You keep
0: alluding to that one single doctor's visit. That's clearly it was so bad. It was so bad. It's non-committal. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I don't blame physicians these days
0: because of malpractice and all these things, but it's CYA medicine, but there, there are situations. Yes, there are. That is, and I'll bring one up for me, right? What's what, oh, Did you do in? that? No, no. I yeah. definitely do that. No, I do that. And I can think of one specific instance. Patient comes in with a nasal fracture, uh huh, barely perceptible. Do mm. we do a closed reduction of a nasal fracture where I basically put something like a metal bar up their nose to try and push it out, but you got to numb them up so that they tolerate it. Or do we leave them alone? Barely perceptible. What do you do? So what I tell those my patients, and we're getting off the topic of persuasion here. I'm just getting a No, no, this is box. good. No, please, this is good. That's this is what this podcast's about, please. But what what I what I tell them is sometimes these are the hardest decisions. If your nose was on the other side of your face, the decision to do surgery would be obvious. But this is a very hard decision because both answers are right answers. Doing something about it, yeah, you might notice it later and you regret not doing it, but it's also barely perceptible. So you might never really notice it. And to put yourself through what's an uncomfortable procedure to do something that with really no benefit, there's no right answer here. Both of them are right answers.
2: That is perfectly fine. Let me give you more clarity on my, because maybe this will help some physicians. Here's the decision that I was trying to get was, my decision was to get a procedure done or not to get a procedure done. And in one case, so we, there was a concern that I had a growth. Okay. So it's like, we, we should check. Right. All right. Yeah. And the other side is, like, no, we'll just leave it alone. And so my thing with him was like, what should I do because I don't want to go do this procedure. But if there's this risk, yeah, let's sure, do this. should I be yeah. about this thing? Like And he would not answer that. He's like, should, oh, you, whatever you yeah, and he's like, whatever yeah. you want to do. I'm like, no, dude, it's not whatever I want to do. Yeah. It, tell me, tell me what to do here. Cause like in that situation, I personally was scared. We ended up doing it and and it was a good it was a good idea. It turned out to be nothing, but thank God. But had we not, had we not, that thing would have been in my head the whole time. And I was too young at the time to think about that. If that was me today, I'd have been like we're going and doing it now. But back then I was so young, I just didn't know what to do.
0: Yeah. You needed their guidance. Man. You needed their yeah. guidance. Yeah. And I think maybe this is this is
2: deep. We're getting deep here. I think I have such a huge respect and admiration of physicians that it just disappointed me so much that this guy was just not
0: like. Not living up to the expectation. Your dad was this giant in your life. And this is where you saw all physicians should be. And this guy did not live up to that expertise.
2: Yeah. So this happened when I was 21. My dad was one, but like to talk about like really big names, I I, w- I looked up to people like Michael DeBakey and Cooley, like these big surgeons, like they, they were confident yeah, in all these things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this guy just, I don't know. And we're getting like a little off topic here, but just, I feel that maybe one of the reasons why physicians, they don't put effort into being, let's say more persuasive and really thinking like, how do I.
0: Not my listeners though. My listeners all put effort into yeah. Well, we, Hell yeah. It because makes the exception. Yeah. The other 750,000 physicians get 50,000 downloads.
2: <laughs> no, but it's true because if you're listening to this podcast, like you're not one of those physicians, you're one of those physicians that are looking for ways to improve. Just by listening to this podcast, you're, I compl- look, we're joking about that, but I completely agree with that though. But I think maybe the other side is that maybe a lot of physicians are just so burnt out from the machine of healthcare. Yeah. And just whatever. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Ground down. It breaks my yep. heart.
0: Well, Omar, this has been great. I Really, there are are so many of these principles that I think we're going to be able to weave into our office visits. And I really appreciate you taking the time. But tell us a little about your podcast. And you plugged the company earlier, but please, Gentem Health, plug it again.
2: Yeah, totally. So we have a podcast called Journey to Private Practice. So anybody who's into private practice, try to get into it. We do a lot of effort to bring on great guests. Brad has been on. Yeah, and Brad, his episode is going to be releasing in September. We do a webinar series. And so, we, our biggest thing at Gentem is how do we help private practices stay independent and not only make money to get by, but really maximize how much money they're getting out of reimbursement and billing. And then, just for your listeners, anybody who's in practice and they're looking to just get some insights on data for their billing and reimbursements, just go to gentem.com and click the demo. You can fill it out and in the, in the how you hear it about us, just mention this, mention the Brad's podcast, and then we'll do a free billing analysis and reimbursement assessment. It's a great thing. You do not have to become a Gentim customer. We would love to you for you to be, but this assessment, you get a lot of data. You get a good reading on like, where's my practice at with reimbursements and how are we making money? Could we be technically making more? Because that's the biggest thing that I think a lot of physicians suffer is that they're getting reimbursed, they're making money and the revenue's coming in, but there's a, actually a lot of money being left on the table and they're shocked when they find out, what, when, they, when we show them what we find. So if you just go to gentem.com forward slash demo. You should find it there and I'll give it to you for the show notes.
0: Great. And I love the service that you're providing because I'm in private practice and more and more practices are getting bought out by private equity and big hospitals. And, and the more we can continue to work for ourselves, it's better for patients. It's better for doctors. And
2: absolutely better
0: for everybody except for those finance guys who wanted to do whatever they can to take some of our revenue. So
2: yeah, I completely agree with you. That. That's another episode right yeah, there.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Omar, thanks so much for your time and have a good night.
2: Hey, pleasure. Thank you, Brad.
0: For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locum to see if a locum tenens assignment is right for you. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you are after so you can decide if locum tenens is your next chapter.